morning, good morning, good morning. Hey, y'all, my name is Glenn. I serve as one of the pastors here. Right out of the gate, just want to make crystal clear, if, if, if Justin left any stone unturned in his announcements, it was that we do not want your four-star and below <laughs> reviews on Google. Five-star only. Feel free to wax eloquent about all the things that God's used our church to bless you in. Uh, there's, there's no shame for that, okay, obviously. So, um, hey, we're, we, uh, we're in the middle of a sermon series, and we're in the book of Genesis. We've been in it since the beginning of the year. Um, if you're new with us, our normal mode of operation as a church is that we teach through books of the Bible. That's 80%, 90% of the time, that's what we're doing. And so we start in chapter one, we go till we're done. We are past the halfway mark in the book of Genesis. We've uh, worked through a lot of things together. Um, who in here likes stories that have some drama? I see a hand, sister. Amen. Hallelujah. Glory. Glory. Who in here likes stories that have some intrigue, some conflict? Uh, there's tension that needs to be resolved. There's a little bit of mystery. Um, who likes thrillers? So uh, if you've been with us in Genesis, we have featured all of the above. So if you're a person who likes stories and you want to complain about this book of the Bible, it's illegitimate, okay? This is a book that has a lot of that. So this morning is no different. We're going to cover 55 verses today. It's going to be in Genesis chapter 31. Genesis 31. I want you to turn there with me. Um, I want to help us settle into this chapter with a little bit of context. So Jacob is our main character. Jacob's dad is Isaac. Isaac's dad is Abraham. God is dealing with four patriarchs in particular from Genesis chapter 12 all the way to the end of the book. Abraham, Isaac, we are now on Jacob. He's going to have a son later on in the story that's going to be Joseph. We'll follow Joseph's story in about six chapters. But right now, Jacob has manipulated and deceived his older brother Esau. We've walked through that together. He's stolen his birthright. He's taken his blessing. Uh, to some extent, he's really fled from his family out of fear. Jacob uh, goes to Padan Aram, and he is going there to find a bride, and uh, he is alone. He doesn't have any company with him. His identity and who he is and where he's going is kind of just up in the air, and he doesn't really know God. Uh, there's no evidence in Scripture that shows us that he's, you know, a man of faith, walking faithfully with God, and yet... What does the Old Testament show us time and time and time again? Our God is faithful. He's sovereign. He superintends many situations, and by his providence, he makes it work out for people who are flawed and people who seek to mess things up. Uh, God wants to see through his covenant promise. So what is that covenant promise? We always want to repeat this because it's easy to, to, to forget this, but uh, Genesis 12 through 50, it starts the whole story of a world that is stuck in sin, and alienated from God and estranged from God. God's made this creation. It was good. It was very good. Sin comes in, ruins, and corrupts everything. It mars the image of God in us as human beings. The very uh, reflection that we carry of God and who he is within us is, is stained and marred and corrupted. And in Genesis 12, God looks at one guy. At the time, his name was Abram. And he says, you, Abram, out of a pagan land, I want you to be a father of many people. You're going to have tons of offspring. I'm going to give you a promised land. I'm going to bless you. 
you are going to make up the people of God, the Hebrew nation, which is going to eventually be called Israel. And through your family of Israel, which is all the dealings of the Old Testament, um, is going to come blessing to the entire world. So on this side of the life and the death and the resurrection of Jesus, we recognize that from Abraham and Isaac and Jacob's seed would eventually come Jesus. And that is how this one family of God would end up blessing the whole earth, as Jesus would explode this good news message of God who came in the flesh and bore our sin and died on the cross where we were supposed to be and, and then rose again to new life and defeated death in the grave and, and Satan. Um, it's now available by faith to everyone in the world. It's not just reserved for the people of Israel. It's now open to the Gentiles is what your Bible will call them. And so here we are. Jacob, Yaakov, means deceiver. It means one who trips or one who manipulates. And all you have to do is look at his story with his older brother to see that this is his, his way of life. And I want you to pick it up with me in Genesis 31, starting in verse 1 to kind of set the scene. Now, Jacob heard that the sons of Laban, that's his uncle, were saying, Jacob has taken all that was our father's. And from what was our father's, he's gained all his wealth. And Jacob saw that Laban, his uncle, did not regard him with favor as before. So, set the stage even more. Um, Laban, Jacob's mom, Rebecca's brother, he kind of holds this stake in Jacob's life where Jacob really wants to marry Rachel. And um, Laban puts conditions on that. He deceives Jacob into... Uh, being with Rachel's sister, Leah. We talked about this last week. Kind of gross, kind of messy. Um, but here's the thing. For 20 years, 20 years, Jacob has been working under Laban as a shepherd. And um, he, he's trying to earn the right to marry Rachel, and that turns into just working hard labor. And Laban, we never see as a character who has a lot of integrity. We're going to see that even more today. In Genesis chapter 30, the previous chapter, if you look with me at verse 25, um, this is six years before where we are right now. So in, in one chapter in Genesis, I mean, it can be a lot of years. It's fast moving, covers a lot of years. In chapter 30, verse 25, it says, as soon as Rachel had born Joseph, Jacob said to Laban, send me away that I may go to my own home and country, that's the promised land, Give me my wives and my children for whom I have served you that I may go, for you know the service that I have given you. Ah, but Laban said to him, If I have found favor in your sight, I have learned by divination that the Lord has blessed me because of you. In other words, because I'm associated with you, I'm getting great gain. Because God is blessing you, Jacob, and you're overseeing my flocks, I'm benefiting from this. Therefore, why would I want you to leave? A desire is planted back in that chapter in Jacob to, to leave and go away. But Laban baits him into six more years of work. Can I just ask a question? Where were you in 2017? Before any of us knew what a global pandemic was, life with that, life during that, life after that, six years is not a short amount of time. Like, that, that's a long time. And that's on top of 14 years that he's already been serving his uncle. And so Laban and his sons, they started to sour toward Jacob. And you know when somebody's body language starts to change a little bit toward you? 
maybe they have a different posture when they're speaking to you. Maybe their tone shifts a little bit. We're going to learn exactly why in just a few verses, but just in case uh, Jacob needed more clarity as to what he was supposed to do. Verse 3, Then the Lord said to him, Return to the land of your fathers and to your kindred, and I will be with you. In other words, Jacob, it's been six years since you expressed this desire. It's time. It's time to go home. Um, in, in Genesis 31, we are uh, about to see pictures of faithfulness, pictures of greed, pictures of idolatry. Uh, we'll explain what that is. What I want to do this morning, church, is I just want to have a good old-fashioned Bible study. Um, I, I don't want to be up here to perform for anyone or to do some clever thing that's going to move your heart and make you feel something. I want to open up this word that comes as revelation from God on high. And I want to read through this and just extract what we can as if all of us were sitting at our kitchen table with our Bible open, reading and paying attention to what we see. Can we please do that? Will the word of God be enough for us this morning? So, verse 4 Jacob sent and called Rachel and Leah into the field where his flock was. This is away from Laban. And he said to them, I see that your father does not regard me with favor as he did before, but the God of my father has been with me. You know that I have served your father with all my strength, yet your father has cheated me and changed my wages ten times, but God did not permit him to harm me. And here's where we're going to understand why Laban's favor toward Jacob has changed. Verse 8. If he said the spotted, this is Laban, if Laban said the spotted shall be your wages, then all the flock bore spotted. If he said the striped shall be your wages, then all the flock bore striped. Thus God has taken away the livestock of Laban and given them to me, Jacob. Verse 10. In the breeding season of the flock, I lifted up my eyes and saw in a dream that the goats that mated with the flock were striped, spotted, and mottled. Then the angel of God said to me in the dream, Jacob, and I said, here I am. And he said, lift up your eyes and see. All the goats that mate with the flock are striped, spotted, and mottled, for I have seen all that Laban is doing to you. You understand what's, what's happening here? A deal was struck that Laban thought this would be great. It'll benefit me for a really long time. And God has seen to it that that deal actually goes against Laban and benefits Jacob over and over and over again. So naturally, Laban's disposition toward Jacob is changing. Verse 13, I am the God of Bethel, where you anointed a pillar and made a vow to me. Now arise, go out from this land and return to the land of your kindred. Church, how often do we need to remember how God has met us and ministered to us in seasons past. This is God coming to a man who is definitely scared and concerned for his livelihood, his home, his family, all that he's earned over all these years. He's been in essentially captivity to this man for 20 years and God is coming to him and saying, it's time to go. And what he does to encourage him, which just shows us the heart of God, 
is he says, don't forget who I am. He says, I was there. Do you remember that past time where you were afraid? Do you remember how I spoke to you? You prayed and I was the God of all comfort. Do you remember when you couldn't see what was coming ahead of you? There was trial and suffering right around the corner and I, I literally was your shepherd through the valley of the shadow of death. Do you remember when you really, really wanted something and you prayed and you longed for that thing and, and my answer to you was no. And in due time, you have seen that that was for my glory and your good. This is God showing us that he wants us to remember. Remember. Church, right now, God has not changed. He is the same yesterday, today, and forevermore. Our life circumstances are always changing. The emotions that we feel within, the wars that happen in our heart and in our mind, always changing. The dynamic of our relationships with other people, always changing. The plans that we have for our tomorrow and the next year and the next year, always changing. God never changes. He is that solid rock on which we can plant our feet, and he's immovable. And Jesus even tells us, like, build your life, build your proverbial house on the rock so that when the wind comes, when the rain comes, when the streams pour in, you will not be moved. So my encouragement to us today is if you're going through anything now, no matter how small or big, God is wanting to come to you and say, trust in me. Do you remember how you had amazing belief in me, amazing trust in me? You had seen me a way that you'd never seen me before back then. I'm about to do it again now. This is a normal thing that happens in the Christian life by faith, by faith. We continue in Genesis 31, 14. Rachel and Leah, Jacob had just talked to them, told them all of this. They answered and said to him, is there any portion or inheritance left to us in our father's house? Are we not regarded by him as foreigners? And listen to this. For he has sold us and he has indeed devoured our money. All the wealth that God has taken away from our father belongs to us and to our children. There was a thing back then that was called a dowry. This was a, an agreement, a, a stipulation that was made um, in, in marriages. It was money given to the father in order to protect the bride. It was sort of put into an account. It was kept and protected by the father for his daughter's financial security down the road. And what we're told here is that Laban spent it. He devoured it. It's gone. And so not only that, but he's bargained his own daughters. So these women are saying, essentially, this guy's nobody to us. He's mistreated us. He's mismanaged and lost all of our wealth. And so they tell Jacob, go. Do what you have proposed. We are ready to leave. And so verse 17, Jacob arose and he set his sons and his wives on camels. He drove away all his livestock, all his property that he had gained, the livestock in his possession that he had acquired in Padan Aram to go to the land of Canaan to his father Isaac. Laban had gone to shear his sheep and Rachel stole her father's household gods. Make a note of that. And Jacob tricked Laban, the Aramean, by not telling him that he intended to flee. He fled with all that he had and across 
arose, excuse me, and crossed the Euphrates and set his face toward the hill country of Gilead. So Gilead, probably about 300 miles west of where they were. Jacob gathers everything he has and he begins to, to leave. But if you read that section right there, there's, like I mentioned, one verse that kind of just does not belong with all the other ones. Rachel made sure to steal her father's household gods. The, the word in Hebrew there is teraphim. And honestly, what that means is it's a small, impotent carving of wood or stone that represents a, a deity. Um, it, it's likely, scholars would say, that Rachel, why, the reason why she grabbed these was not just because, like, oh, these are cool. She, she grabbed them because there may come a time down the road where she would need to have some kind of legal cause to obtain her father's inheritance. And sometimes being in possession of these really important household gods would be the means through which you can do that. So it's self-preservation. And uh, in verse 22, the story continues. When it was told Laban on the third day that Jacob had fled, it took him a few days, he took his kinsmen with him and pursued him for seven days and followed close after him into the hill country of Gilead. Now, this is a long journey. Uh, Jacob, I just want to make crystal clear, did not take anything that was not his. Jacob didn't steal anything from Laban. And Laban is pursuing this man and his possessions that are not his for seven days, for a week. He's got all of his kinsmen. He's, he's going after him. And I, I, I think Laban wanted to kill Jacob. You'll actually see that in a bit. Don't take my word for it. But just as Laban is, is camped nearby and he's poised to attack, the very next day, someone intervenes in verse 24. But God came to Laban the Aramean in a dream by night and said to him, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. It's a confusing line. It literally means from good to bad. In other words, um, don't let the conversation go south. In other words, uh, tread lightly. Tread carefully. I am with this man. And so uh, Laban, he, he proceeds to go into Jacob's camp. In verse 25, he overtakes Jacob. Jacob had pitched his tent in the hill country, and Laban with his kinsmen pitched tents in the hill country of Gilead. And here's where the boiling point comes. Here's where the conversation begins. Um, all of this tension, all of this drama, there, there is a, a, a mountain of conflict that's about to, to hit. Um, and it's going to be in the form of a conversation. And I love this because it sounds like a real-life conversation between two people who are really upset with each other. Um, we're going to be, be able to relate to this. So here is Laban in verse 26 saying to Jacob, What have you done that you have tricked me and driven away my daughters like captives of the sword? Church, I want you to pay attention to how he's waxing eloquent in these things that he says. Verse 27, why did you flee secretly and trick me and did not tell me so that I might have sent you away with mirth and songs, with tambourine and lyre? Verse 28, and why did you not permit me to kiss my sons and my daughters farewell? Now you have done foolishly. It is in my power to do you harm. But the God of your father spoke to me last night, saying, be careful not to say anything to Jacob, either good or bad. And now you have gone away because you longed greatly for your father's house 
but why, last, last question, last statement, why'd you steal my gods? Why did you steal my gods? What would happen, just to summarize the next handful of verses, is um, Laban, who, by the way, just a, a character comment, God spoke to Laban in a dream or a vision the night before. Don't touch Jacob. Deal carefully with him. Laban hears that and acknowledges it. Okay, I will do what you say. I will not attack him. Uh, but where are my gods? Do you see the, the backwards nature of this? He's coming to Jacob saying, I'm not attacking you because your God spoke to me. I heard it. He's real. Where are my gods? So what this introduces us to is Laban then um, going into Rachel's tent, Leah's tent, the maidservant's tents. He's looking through all of Jacob's stuff, ransacking the place to find these household gods. Now he's going to be deceived by his own daughter who sits on top of a, a camel sack with these idols in it and tells him, I, oh, dad, I can't rise to greet you because the way of women is about me, okay? Um, smart, smart. But I, I do just want to say this. If you can have your God stolen, if you can have your God lost, if your God can fit in a bag, if your God can be sat on, it's not a good God. Not a good God. Not a worthy God, amen? Webster's Dictionary defines idolatry as the worship of idols or excessive devotion to or reverence for some person or thing. The most prevalent form of idolatry in ancient times was the worship of images or statues or icons that were believed to embody various pagan deities. And, you know, this applies to us today because we may not have those. But even for those who do not bow physically before a statue, idolatry is a matter of the heart. And it's not just a matter of a, some vague heart. It's a matter of all of our hearts. The old reformer, the old preacher from about 500 years ago, John Calvin, he said that the human heart is a factory of idols. It's an, it's an idol factory. Um, we were all born worshipers. Like, I, I want to appeal to you right now. Like, you, wherever you're from and however you ended up in this room, you, you are a worshiper by nature. There's actually nothing you can change about that. We're all created to, to, to lean into, to depend on, to look to something that's greater than just what's right here. We're all wired from birth to attribute more weight in our lives to something or someone. And so we're all worshipers, and it's in our soul. You know, for some, we worship, and we're worshiping right now safety and security. For some, we worship approval and respect from people. We worship achievement. We worship status. For others, we, we worship pleasure and greed. We nurse addictions. We, we want what we want, when we want it. And here's how you know what an idol is in your life. It's something that if it ceased to be there for you, um, you would struggle to find motivation to go on living. Uh, you would have a really, really difficult time imagining your life apart from 
it. Okay, I'm asking you right now to start thinking and reflecting on your life. Like, what is it? What are they? Um, we, we may not have a motivation to go with them. We, we, we draw our sense of worth from it. We receive our sense of, of, of purpose from it. Uh, we have a reason to keep going from it. We hope in it. Is it on your mind yet? Are they on your mind yet? It's a rotating platter of idols that's in our heart from birth. This is how we are wired. We, we draw from it our sense of security and our sense of happiness. And so what I want to ask is in each of our lives, the decisions that we make, the things that we do, the things that we don't do, perhaps the lack of sacrifice we make, the lack of, of charity and generosity we have, the lack of, of desire to be selfless and serve and, and practice humility and, and, and honestly just be like Christ. It may not just be because we need to change some behavior. Like it may be something way, way deeper than that. It may actually be that we are worshiping something other than God. It has claim on our lives, our thought life, our feelings and emotions. It lays claim to fears that we have and things that we're afraid to take steps of faith in. It lays claim to every part of us and oftentimes unknowingly. We're marching and living day by day, bowed down to a proverbial God who's no God at all. And so the question I want to ask as we read through this, Laban is a like rank idolater. But before we love to, you know, throw stones at him, to whom or to what are we giving the most weight in our lives? And here's the tricky part. Many of those things can be good things, but they are not God. They're not God. Nothing is like him. No one is like him. I want to read from Psalm 115 because David, or the psalmist, excuse me, he has something to say about idols that I think is, is uh, quite compelling. And it connects to this section of Genesis 31 because of how physical and tangible Laban's gods are. Psalm 115, beginning in verse 1, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory for the sake of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. Pause. What in your life can give you steadfast love and faithfulness the way God in Christ can? Nothing! No one! It will all fail. God does not. In verse 2, why should the nation say, where is their God? Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Verse 4, their idols are silver and gold, the work of human hands. They have mouths but do not speak, eyes but do not see. They have ears but do not hear, noses but do not smell. They have hands but do not feel, feet but do not walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. They don't speak back to us. They don't bless us. They don't comfort us. They don't talk to us. They're nothing. They're empty. They're vain. Everything aside from Yahweh. That's right. 
those who make them become like them. So do all who trust in them. Church, this idolatry is deeply embedded in us. From the day we were born, we were estranged from God and we were made to worship God. You were made to worship God. You were made to worship God. You were made to have an ongoing interaction relation, interactive relationship with him. You were made to experience the comfort of friendship with him. You were made to know and be known by him. Sin has estranged us from God. It's made us spiritual orphans in this world without a father. And when Jesus comes, he gives us the right to become children of God. And to be able to call God Father is to be able to know him in a familial way. It's a beautiful thing, a gift to be treasured. And idols rob us of that experience. Church, we have to declare war on idolatry. I'm not making a cute sermon point. We, we Christians have to declare war on idolatry. God has made us for so much more. He has set us apart. He's called us chosen, holy, his treasured possession. We are blood-bought purchased all of our decisions and our um, reactions and what we prioritize and, and even how we suffer trials in this life they all give testimony and shout to the world I am a new creation I'm not who I once was I don't believe what I once believed the story of the world is completely different to me now my past and my future destiny are, are, are different to me now. The best way for me to press this in, I think, is to bring up the concept of funerals. I want you to envision one day your own funeral. I'll tell you this much. I don't envision for the men in the room I don't envision someone getting up on stage at your funeral and saying, man, so much respect for this guy. The truck in his driveway, double cab, extended bed. That thing was four by four off-road. Now, he never had to use it for that because he lived in the suburbs. But if he had needed to, <laughs> would have been amazing. Totally worth it. Uh, you know, I think for many of us, no one at our funeral is going to say, Nobody could, could scroll through social the way that she did. The, the comments the, and, and all the videos she saved too, uh, the Pinterest ideas that she had, like nobody did it like she did. You guys understand where I'm going. Um, the list goes on and on. I mean, we, when, when our funeral comes, we're going to be measured by who we were and we're going to be measured by who we were to people. When did we show up? What words of counsel and wisdom did we give? Um, it's not going to be how much we built our life. It is going to be measured by how much each of us gave our life away. Idols are another way to build our life on sinking sand. 
um, they will all dissolve. They will not last. There will be a new heavens, a new earth. We will have resurrected bodies. There will be a whole new reality for Christians. We need to learn to live in light of eternity. We have to learn to picture our life in the story of redemption, that Jesus has come, and we take claim of that. We celebrate the good news, but he's coming again. He's going to return in all power and authority. May we build our lives on a rock. Um, the sad part sometimes about atheism in our world is that it is, I think, well-founded. Um, I'll never forget, I think I've, I've mentioned this before, the old DC Talk song, What If I Stumble. Anybody remember that song, What If I Stumble? Five, six, seven, eight, come on, come on, yeah. DC Talk uh, had this song, you know, years ago, and, and at the beginning of the song was this clip. I, I still to this day, I, I, I don't know who it was. I think it was an author um, who said the greatest single cause of atheism in our world is Christians who acknowledge Jesus with their lips but deny him by their lifestyle. That is what an unbelieving world simply finds unbelievable. What would it look like for us to see idols come crashing down? Not just in this internal private prayer closet, but, but for idols to be done away with us in such a way that people around us see that notably. Right? There, there's a lot of preachers that may ask, you know, can you just take one one step of faith. Just take one step in the right direction. Just, you know, give 1% more. Just do, you know, one action step. And Sometimes I want to throw that away. And I just dream, as we all should as Christians who belong to the kingdom of God, what would our life look like if it was turned upside down by Jesus? What would our life look like if none of what we valued was temporary but eternal? How would we spend our time? What kind of commitments and priorities would we have? And when it's all said and done, people are looking at our life and trying to come up with words to say at our funeral. What will be said of us? Um, I want to continue the story because there's more here. Uh, Jacob has now been confronted by Laban. And Laban has asked him, why'd you do this? I could have sent you off with a huge song and festival and blah, blah, blah. And so now Jacob has had it. Jacob's had it. What I'm going to present to you now is one of the greatest tirades that you will read in the Old Testament, beginning in verse 36. Jacob became angry and berated Laban, saying the least. Jacob said to Laban, what is my offense? What is my sin that you have hotly pursued me? For you have felt through all my goods. By the way, Jacob didn't know that Rachel took the household gods. What have you found of all your household goods? Set it here before my kinsmen and your kinsmen that they may decide between us two. These 20 years I have been with you. Your ewes and your female goats have not miscarried. And I have not eaten the rams of your flocks. What was torn by wild beasts I did not bring to you. I bore the loss of it myself. From my hand you required it, whether stolen by day or stolen by night. There I was by day, the heat consumed me and the cold by night, and my sleep fled from my eyes. These 20 years I have been in your house, 
I served you 14 years for your two daughters and six years for your flock, and you have changed my wages 10 times. If the God of my father, the God of Abraham, and the fear of Isaac had not been on my side, surely now you would have sent me away empty-handed. God saw my affliction and the labor of my hands and rebuked you last night. Stinging. I want to get us into Jacob's character here. In verse 39, uh, you can read, and here's the thing. When a shepherd would uh, keep an owner's flock, if a, if a wolf or an animal came in and, and killed one of those lambs, those goats, those sheep, uh, that shepherd would have to bring what was left over of that, like the carcass, a bloody limb, to prove, hey, I didn't steal anything. Uh, it was attacked by, by a wild animal. Jacob is saying, for all these years that I've been with you, every time that's happened, I haven't even bothered you with it. I've just taken from my own flock and replaced it as though I stole it. So this is not the Jacob we've seen in previous chapters. Are you starting to see this? This is a different Jacob. This is a Jacob whose character is beginning to be shaped. There's a sense of, of fear of God. He literally calls God the fear of Isaac, the fear of his father. He's recognizing what Scripture tells us. Fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom in all of life. Reverence for God. Living your life as a, a husband, a wife, as a parent, as a, as a worker. All of it unto God and not to other people. Unto God is where wisdom begins. And Jacob is seeing this. And I think we have a study, a case study with Jacob of faithfulness. 20 years and at any point this man could have flown off the handle and done something really foolish, right? 20 years this guy was living this kind of life. And I just want to confess to you, faithfulness can be really hard. Can anyone else like agree with me on that? Being faithful to something can be really hard. Two people in the room are struggling with faithfulness. It's not true. Liars, lift up your hands. Faithfulness is hard. Like there are things right now I don't want to be faithful to. It's tough being faithful. Some of you city group leaders in the room, it's hard sometimes to keep leading that group. Keep opening up your home and bringing people in with whatever they have going on and coming up with things to say and ways to pray and things to talk about and, and opening yourself and your life up for, for more need around you as a shepherd. Some of you in your workplace, you, like you do not like where you're working right now, but something's keeping you there because you know your presence makes a good difference. You're not of this world, and so there's a character that you possess and, a, and an integrity that you have, and you don't want to leave out of a sense of maybe guilt or just, I, I know it's better when I'm here just with my hand to the plow. Faithfulness is really, really hard, but it's something that God produces in Christians. You know, there's no shortage of a list that we can make for why we should quit something, right? Like we can make a long list of excuses for not doing much of anything in our lives. And here's what the wisdom of Scripture says, Proverbs 20, verse 6. Many a man proclaims his own steadfast love, but a faithful man who can find. Many people say, I love you, I, I love God, I love this place, I, I'm, I love. But a faithful man or woman who can find. Nehemiah 7.2, as they're building this wall, Old Testament story, um, I love there's a link that's made in the way Nehemiah um, 
recruits people to govern uh, the, the castle wall and building it in Jerusalem. He says, I gave my brother and forgive me. I don't know how to spell the, or say those words. The governor of the castle charge over Jerusalem for he was more faithful and what? God-fearing than many. In Luke 19, Jesus says, well done, good servant, because you have been faithful in a very little. You shall have authority over 10 cities. This is a picture of reward in the new heavens and the new earth for how we live today. Jesus sees, if you don't take away anything else, Jesus sees your faithfulness when no one else does. God sees your faithfulness right now, friend, when no one else does. He sees it. He will reward it. It's worth it. Keep going. Galatians, Paul says, do not grow weary of doing good. For in due season, you will reap a harvest. Keep loving, keep serving. I want to just, last thing this morning, I want to contend to our church or appeal to our church, whatever. I just, behind every healthy church, behind every healthy marriage, behind every healthy home, every healthy workplace are what? Faithful people. Steadfast people. Consistent people. Unwavering people. This church, I just want to say thank you because there's many people, some who aren't even here this morning, who have had remarkable faithfulness. You have been here at City Life Bennington since day one. I've seen you almost every week for three years. And sometimes I don't see you because you're serving in kids. Sometimes I don't see you because you're setting up flags. I don't see you because you're doing stuff to serve the body of Christ. God sees you. And I just want to make an appeal for anyone here who that, that's lacking in your walk with Jesus is faithfulness. You've, you've jumped into the Bible study or, or the, the group, you know, and like it hasn't lasted. You've been there for two weeks and it just hasn't carried through. You, you've signed up to serve in some way, it hasn't carried through. You, you have gone through a lot of jobs and you've hopped from job and, and occupation to occupation um, and it's hard for you to cultivate faithfulness. I wanna give you three things to help cultivate faithfulness in your life. Um, here they are. Read your Bible. Open this book up and put it in your way every day. Don't let your life go on until God has spoken through this to you. Learn to be dissatisfied with your day when not five minutes have been spent with the Lord. I don't care what you do. You don't have to buy a fancy Bible. You use an app. Get yourself in the Word of God. Do you know why I'm telling you that? It's not because it's the thing to do as a Christian. It's because reading God's Word opens your mind, opens your heart to a view and perspective of the world and your life that you will not carry with you if you're not reading it. You will be prone to be focused and fix your attention on what is right in front of you, what is temporary, not what is eternal. How in the world do you expect to be a person who is joyfully faithful in that circumstance? Number two is pray. Pray. Ask God to give you sight from heaven on the things you're being faithful in. Parents in the room, thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you for sowing seeds to your kids. You know what? Not every night do I want to put my five-year-old Savannah to bed and go through a catechism 
with her and read Bible stories with her. I want her to go away. Go to bed. Stop talking. And before you cast a stone right now, I know you're the same. God loves my daughter way more than I do. And he has positioned me. My lot in life is to be her dad. So I'll do it because I love her, because God loves her. You know what? Not every week do I wake up and say, God, thank you so much that I'm a pastor of City Life Bennington. Surprise! I'm sorry. I have to discipline myself to open up the word of God, get heaven's eyes, keep my heart soft toward heaven, keep my soul close in friendship with God, and put myself amongst you and talk to you and see your faces and realize I love these people. I love this church. But you know what? I'm prone to wander from that. So I read my Bible and I pray because God will give me his perspective. That's what cultivates faithfulness. You know what the third thing is? That's one and two. The third thing is put yourself around faithful people. Get in the room and across a table from faithful people. Get faithful saints, young and old, in your home. Get them in your living room. Go get a cup of coffee, listen to their story. Be around faithful people just so that you can see this is possible. It's possible to be faithful where I'm at. It's possible to walk in freedom. It's possible to be obedient. It's possible to pursue righteousness. It's possible. If that happens, you will become someone who other people then want to be around and think about in our life as a church how mutually beneficial it is when all of us are in God's word hearing from him, praying and interacting with him and putting ourselves around faithful people and becoming faithful people. So much fruit to be had. So look at this story of these two characters and I wanna close with this. Uh, Laban, he so fears losing his stuff that to sum up the rest of the chapter, he comes to Jacob and he tells Jacob, we have to make a pact that you'll not come into my family's territory and I'm not gonna come into your family's territory. And long story short, Laban agrees to use Jacob's God as the higher power to appeal to. We're, Jacob, we're gonna swear to one another and make an oath and it's gonna be on the God of, who is it again, Abraham? And Isaac, and you know, like it, it's going to be on your God. And what we see is Laban at the end of this story, essentially just using God as a means to an end. Jacob, if it means you won't touch my stuff, if it means you won't steal from me or do anything to harm my kingdom that I'm building, sure, I'll make an oath with your God. And still does not recognize him as God. And I just want to say, until that vertical relationship in your life is shored up. God is not your means to an end. Until you have actually come before him, you, yourself, who will have to give account to him, until you come before him alone, just you, 
and you're willing to say, I have conviction of sin in my life. God, I've betrayed you. I've ignored you. I've rebelled against you. This isn't good. This isn't right. I need this vertical relationship to be solid. I need to know with assurance that I'm loved by you, that I'm all right before you, that we're on good terms. And God has said, I've made that happen so that you never have to worry about it forever. I sent my son, Jesus. Jesus came to bear your sin. Jesus came to pay the penalty for your sin, not his. He was innocent. And because Jesus shed his blood on that cross, because Jesus lived the life that we should have lived sinless, and because he rose again and curb stomped the enemy and said, death has no more power, any man, woman, or child can say, I don't want to bow down and serve false gods anymore. I don't want to give my life to useless things anymore. God, I'm coming to you because I want forgiveness. I want to be reconciled to you. I want relationship with you that begins the moment I place my faith in you, not the day I die. That's eternal life. It's to know God and to know Christ who he sent. If you are not a Christian today, you've not bowed your knee to Jesus the hand of heaven is extended to you. You're here for a reason. God's been pursuing you. Give your life to Christ. Stop delaying. Waiting for you on the other side is every kind of grace and mercy from the one who made you forevermore. And all you have to do is trust in him and the work that he's already done. It does not mean there's new work for you to accomplish, a new ladder for you to climb, a new righteousness for you to achieve. The good news of Jesus says it's finished. It is finished. Have faith in me. Follow me. Let's pray. God, I'm asking this morning that we would be marked by increased Thank you for being faithful to us. God, show us and expose in our hearts our idols. Move us to a place of repentance and freedom. God, give us the satisfaction. Oh, Lord, please give us the satisfaction of living our lives for something so much more. Jesus, as we sang earlier, you are worthy of it all. From you are all things. To you are all things. All of human history will culminate in you, Jesus, every knee will bow and every tongue confess. God, this is something not to just fear. It's something to embrace. We love you because you first loved us, Jesus.